0: Episode 236. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Week two of Women and Aliens Appreciation Month, a full month of stories about aliens written by women. Women and aliens are both awesome and underappreciated. And I'm not just saying that to get laid or spared from enslavement by Either party, really. Women and aliens have a lot in common, actually. They both shoulder the brunt of pretty gruesome life cycles. Stay calm. Help me. They both require copious amounts of cucumber melon to survive Earth's harsh atmosphere. And they both have regular cycles where they return and hunt and mutilate hapless squadrons of insensitive loudmouthed men. I ain't got time to bleed. Women and aliens are like Wi-Fi. They're all around us. But you'll never figure out the password. Hey, so it's been a while since we've done one of these. Let's see what's cooking in the world of news that is far too strange to be fiction. We bring you Drabble News. This. From Scientific American. Researchers resurrect new species of life from ancient Andean tomb. Okay, folks, before I get too far in here, word of warning. This is about to go places you can't possibly be imagining right now. Really interesting places, if you're an armchair microbiological archaeologist. And really gross places, if you're the rest of us. So get this. Long before the Spanish conquered the Incas in 1533, centuries before the Incas even inhabited the area, the present-day site of Cuito International Airport, Ecuador, was a marshy lake surrounded by Indian settlements, the Cuitas on one shore and the Ipias on the other. Fast forward to Cuito today. While clearing land for new construction in a warren of graffiti-covered cinderblock shanties, workers recently scraped open ten deep-welled kuitas tombs that had been hidden for over a millennium. There they found twenty bodies crouched in the fetal position, clothed in fine textiles, adorned with gold jewelry, and surrounded by large, peculiar jugs. Paging, Connor Shodsworth. Cool, huh? Yeah. So, after collecting scrapings trapped deep in the torpedo shaped pottery's pores, yeast biologist Javier Carvajal Barriga of the Pontificia Universidad Católica del Ecuador used a special method of his own devising to humidify the desiccated cells, repair their damaged membranes, and jumpstart their arrested metabolisms, effectively bringing back to life a community of yeasts that had lain dormant and entombed since 680 AD and were unlike any species of yeast he'd ever seen before before, all except for one strain belonging to genus Candida, which he probably sees way more than any man should ever reasonably have to, the kind found in vaginal yeast infections. That's right, folks. Between AD 200 and 800, these cultures prospered by their marshy lake, fishing from its shore, growing corn, beans, and potatoes in the fertile soil, and fermenting an alcoholic drink they called chicha, made of a watery corn broth, probably some Jaeger, and human vaginal yeast byproduct. Seriously. Well, you gotta have something to wash down that Jaeger with. Carvajal says he resurrected a consortium of yeasts from the pottery, none of which are related to the kind commonly used to ferment beverages today. Instead, he says, what the Cuitas used to ferment their booze resembles more, quote, a variety of human-related yeasts. And the worst part? These types of yeasts only produce alcohol up to 4% in strength, so you can't even get drunk off it. Looks like Miller Lite's been around a lot longer than anybody thought. They just rebranded. Great taste, less grayish, white, curd-like consistency. So, what are you armchair microbiological archaeologists thinking right now? Wow, with new yeast discoveries, we can find out all sorts of neat stuff about prior man, tracking down things like early human migration and contact. We know now, after examining these yeasts, says Carvajal that there were contacts between South American peoples and Polynesians departing Taiwan some 6,000 years ago. And what are the rest of us thinking right now? Gross. Vag, yeast, moonshine? That's why they call it hooch. And that's Drabble News. So, more on the subject of strange and ancient cultures, we bring you a 100 word story. This week's Drabble story comes to us from Chris Schreier and it's called Cloud and Sky. Chris is a stay-at-home father to two suspiciously well-behaved toddlers. He lives in the Washington D.C. area where he spends much of his time looking for a job and stewing over the ignorance of people on either side of every argument. Yep. It was him, all right. Shouting Cloud walked slowly down the street, his usual furtive glances replaced by total indifference. Most of the people of Silver Creek either didn't know the particulars or didn't believe. Not yet, anyway. Cloud warned me a few days ago to leave town. I didn't listen, and this morning, the sky was boiling. He'd been reading signs for years, telling us that Skyfather was coming, closer. No, not indifference. Emptiness. God alone knew where Shouting Cloud had gone. See, turns out there's a whole mess of Sky Fathers. All with long, shining rifles. And our feature story this week. When you visit the Mahubaskloof Hotel... Be Certain Not to Miss the Samango Monkeys, by Elizabeth Baer. Born in Hartford, Connecticut, Elizabeth was born the same day as Frodo and Bilbo Baggins, but in a different year. This, coupled with a childhood tendency to read the dictionary for fun, led her inevitably to penury, intransigence, the mispronunciation of common English words, and the writing of speculative fiction. So, without further ado, we bring you When You Visit the Cloof Hotel, Be Certain Not to Miss the Samango Monkeys, by Elizabeth Baer. In the place where I was born, stones had been used to mark boundaries for 400 years. We harrowed stones up in fields, turned them up in road cuts. We built the foundations of houses from stones, dug around and between them. We made stone walls and our greatest poet wrote poems about those walls and their lichen speckled granite. The gift of glaciers and the rye joke of farmers. She'll grow a ton and a half an acre between the stones. The people who lived there before mine made tools of them, made weights and currency. This is an alien landscape. Another world. A cold, empty desert on the other side of a long, cold sleep, light years away from the place I grew up and can never go home to. A place that lies across a gulf of cannibalized colony ships and unfeeling stars. But stones are a boundary here too. They mark the line between life and death, between our pitiful attempts to terraform and the natives' land with its stark stone cities and empty plains. And this stone, wound about with a wind-blown veil, dark blue as the autumn sky of my homeworld, so much brighter than the dusty firmament of this one. This stone marks other things. A body was buried here. Not long ago, and not a human one. I'm the xenobiologist. There's a sonic shovel buried in my pack beside the sample kits, and an overwhelming sense thumping in me that what I'm about to do is irrevocably wrong. I scan the horizon for alien aircraft, ears tuned for the hum of engines. When I see and hear nothing. I begin digging through my pack. Samango monkeys were listed as a rare species under Sites Appendix 2 because they were confined to an ecosystem covering less than 1% of the land area of South Africa, the evergreen Afromonte forests. Unlike their ubiquitous relatives, the vervet monkeys, the samango monkeys were rarely seen by outsiders. The sonic shovel looks like an entrenching tool. It folds, and the narrow blade screws onto the handle. It weighs less than a kilogram, but the rigid parts are monomolecular carbon laminate. It's exceedingly strong, much lighter than the spades and posthole diggers I used on Mother's 115 acres in Vermont. That's a thought that comes with a sting. That land isn't there anymore, and neither are the shaggy-coated ponies and the long-haired goats that were my childhood companions and chores. Or more precisely, the land is still there, but since the shift, it's not much of a farm even a ragged New England farm, clawed from a mountainside. It amuses me to realize that when the ice goes back, if the ice goes back, 400 years of plow and pick of Morgan horses and oxen pulling at their collars will be undone and all the settlers, if there are any settlers, will have to start all over again on a fresh crop of rocks to turn it back into a farm. I bite the valve and gulp oxygen to ease the straining pressure in my chest. I flip the switch on the shovel's handle before I set it against dirt and stone. The packed soil would be challenging to shift by hand, but technology makes short work of many obstacles. Alas, the ones I need solutions for prove obdurate in the face of technology. And ingenuity, too. I could almost wish that the work were harder. Manual labor is good for stopping thought. But the sonic shovel makes this little more strenuous than walking, even in the thin, icy air. And walking is an excellent way to shift one's brain to overdrive. The Samango monkey was larger and darker than the vervet monkey. Its diet consisted largely of fruit and leaves, supplemented by flowers and insects. The Moubiklouf Hotel in the Limpopo district of South Africa, an eco-tourism destination, was famous for its Samango monkey feeding program, which allowed tourists the chance to see the rare animals up close. We never understood what a garden was Earth until we got out here, where it's cold and strange, and nothing wholesome grows. We're going to run out of preserved food sooner rather than later, and the babies have all been stillborn so far. And it's my job to know why. And I just do not. We fired all but blind. It's only luck that the world we aimed for is habitable at all. And it's my job as xenobiologist to keep it that way, to find a way to bend the biochemistry of this planet to our bodies, to remedy the lack of digestible proteins in the native flora and the prevalence of ever so slightly toxic to earth life alkaloids, to understand how native intelligence developed here when they're the only animal we've found on this planet, where even plant life is so sparse. We have so many lovely theories. The fragmentary fossil record we've uncovered shows a complete ecology until only eye blinks ago, on a geologic scale. The natives could be the sole survivors of some ecological catastrophe. They could even be the cause of it, or the most intriguing possibility. Like us, they could come from somewhere else. And no matter where they came from, what happened to everything else here? I wish we knew how to talk to them. Wish we knew if they even have language, when near as I can tell they might communicate by pheromones or kinetically via posturing too subtle for us to even notice. It might help us understand why they treated us as long-lost brethren from day one. Until Veronica Chambers, we reconstruct, exhumed one of the veil-marked graves, probably not even knowing what she was digging up and the natives sliced her very tidily and very thoroughly into bits. I helped retrieve the corpse. I remember very clearly what her remains looked like. Blood everywhere, grey with dust. But even after that, nothing changed about the friendly, unassuming way they treated us. We haven't moved beyond the grunt and point and occasionally dismember level of conversation we've achieved. You'd think, at least, math would transfer. One rock plus one rock equals two rocks. You would think. There was never any question that the brightly clad natives were intelligent. They came in strange mechanical craft and greeted us with wonderful gifts from the first day we landed. Gracious hosts, utterly without fear. For all, we had not found a way to speak with them. It took me some time to understand the simple logic of it. They had no competition on their harsh, dry world, except the world itself. There were no predators, no other animals, no prey. They dined by poking lichen-covered rocks into the puckered orifices below their nominal chins. The rocks emerged some hours later, polished, shiny as agates, The young were born alive, fed from flat dugs in the crevices between their double-joined arms and their tripartite carapaces. Their only enemy was the planets, and their supreme allies were each other. It was their biology to make us at home, or so I thought, assumed, until Veronica. We have so many lovely theories about how the aliens evolved, where they came from, why they are so oddly peaceable as emperor penguins, as Galapagos tortoises that have never seen a threat. And I can't explore or disprove any of them unless I can dissect a dead one and sample whatever it is that they use for genetic material. I lean on my sonic shovel, considering the mound of dirt between my boots. I'm lucky to have been chosen, lucky to have gotten a colony ship at my age. Lucky to be here, brushing soil from the Triskelian carapace of some alien mother's child with my fingertips, so I don't damage the cadaver with my shovel. The baby's body is almost half my size and wrapped in more blue cloth. Layers of it spun of the fibers and dyed bright with the sap of those same alien plants that we cannot eat. I edge fingers under the carapace, make sure that the soft and oddly human three-fingered hands stay tucked tight inside the funeral pall, protected when I lift. I have to jump down beside it, like Hamlets with Ophelia, to get enough purchase to haul it up. I use the shovel as a lever. When I raise my head to half-roll, half-drag the alien's body out of the grave, I am looking into a dozen triads of eyes. I guess I picked a bad day to start robbing graves. I was 11 when I saw my first samango monkey. My mother had brought me to South Africa for an ecology conference. It was not a done thing to bring children to professional conferences in those days. In some ways, we did become more enlightened and more aware that a separation between family and profession can be an artificial stress. But the scientists were very kind. Dr. Martins from UCLA, I remember in particular, introduced me to all the exotic fruits and spices and laughed at the faces I made. I, in turn, laughed at the faces the monkeys made, especially the babies. The monkeys were rust and silver, ticked with black. Their coats were long, not silky, but kinky, like soft, nappy human hair brushed out. They smelled like animals, acrid, musky, unpleasant. The males were almost twice as big as the females, their rough-and-tumble muzzles elongated over enlarged canines. The females had faces as sweet as Barbie dolls and radiant, carnelian-colored eyes. One particular monkey who came to the kloof for feedings had two babies that did not look like each other. While twins were not unheard of, these were not twins. Rather, female samango monkeys, Dr. Martins explained, were extremely maternal. They would even adopt orphaned infants from other troops. This particular female had adopted an orphaned vervet monkey. I don't know where she found it. I know now that the vervet was more common to the savannah than the Afro-Montane, But find it she did, and take it for her own. I rest the dead alien child carefully on the edge of the grave and look directly at the native standing in front of me. It reaches out with one soft-skinned, grey hand. I flinch back, but the touch is gentle. The native, the tallest and broadest of the group, is wrapped in veils of vermilion and cinnamon. No other in the group wears those colors. Or blue, I realize. Because that deep, true azure is the color of death to them. As surely as red, or black, or white, is the color of death on Earth. The native hands me out of the grave, lifting me past the body of the child. I leave the shovel behind. It's not heavy enough to make a weapon, and grabbing for it would be obvious. The biggest native towers over me. It hasn't let go of my hand. I crane back to look up at its elephant gray head. My level gaze would rest at the V-shaped collar of its carapace. Soft crunching emanates from inside its body, the sound of its crop or gizzard or whatever these creatures stuff full of rocks and then crank like a churn to get their dinners. I'm sorry, I say, exactly as if the thing could understand me. One of its three enormous jewel-blue eyes blinks, and I wonder if there's a connection between the blue of the veil and the blue of their eyes. Some symbolism about seeing into the other world, perhaps. I don't even know if they believe in an other world. I wish I had an arthropologist. Hell, I wish I were an arthropologist. But I'm not, and the native is squeezing, tugging my hand, gently still, but for how long? So I keep talking. I didn't mean any disrespect, but I need a cadaver to see how your bodies work, if we're going to survive here. Another eye blinks and reopens, unhurried. They operate on a cycle, two open, one being cleansed. Or resting. Or something. We've never seen a native sleeping. I wonder if they have tripartite brains. Tritospheres? What would you call that? The same way they seem to have three of everything else. Maybe they sleep like dolphins did on Earth, part of the brain active while the rest dozes. I just don't know. There's so much I don't know, that I'm going to die not knowing. Still holding my right wrist, the native lifts another arm. Wetness spills from the nipple in its underarm, washing dust from the carapace. The shell isn't gray after all. The cloudy fluid looks like whey, but cleans a swath of tortoiseshell amber and black before it soaks into the native's veils. The native pulls me close. Thin air burns my throat as I struggle, air reeking acrid with the native stench. I crave oxygen. There's no time to grab my mask. A clicking grunt. A noise like boulders knocked together. The first non-gastric noise I've heard one make. The others close in around me. I wonder what Veronica did if this is what she saw before they killed her. The wall of bodies, granite stones wrapped in rainbow gauze, the acrid smell of the natives' milk, the slow, meticulous blinking of the third blue eye. I wonder how much it's going to hurt when they kill me. It yanks, two hands now. The second one presses my face into the foul-smelling mess dripping down its side. I strain back, but the grip is unbreakable, and the fluid burns my skin when the native shoves me into it. I whimper like a puppy. The hands are encompassing, one on my wrist, one holding, controlling my head. The milk tastes like ammonia, my eyes tear. The teat is hot and hard against my cheek, like the udders on my mother's goats when they needed milking, when they needed milking. Like an orphaned vervet monkey, I understand what the massive creature wants. The fluid filling my mouth is rank and sharp. It burns going down. It might be poison, like everything on this planet. But the natives are smart smart enough for hovercraft and holograms, smart enough for biochemistry, and there is always the possibility, bizarre and remote as it is, that the microscopic flora in mother's milk might work for me as it works for them. I wonder if they dissected Veronica to learn that. Whether it works or not, I'll be sick. Really. Really sick. I hope they know what to do with me, because sure as hell I don't. But I'm learning. You have to adapt to the place you live in if you're going to survive outside your environment, because your environment will not adapt to you. We have to give up one home to live in another, so it's just as well we can't go back. We wouldn't recognize the place. I always did wonder what became of that vervet monkey, growing up in a place God never intended him for. I saw my first samango monkey in 1999. By the time I left Earth, they were extinct, another victim of the shift. I don't remember when the species was lost, but I do remember where I was on January 12, 2004, when my mother handed me a small article on the Mahubiskluf Hotel in Limpopo District, South Africa. It had burned to the stones the day before, but everybody inside had gotten out alive. And that was our story, hope you enjoyed. Home is where the milk is, I guess. It's interesting to think, after hearing a story about coping in a bizarre alien environment, how freaked out aliens from another world would be if they found themselves embedded in our weird-ass culture. Laser jets are a deadly weapon of war on our planet, capable of swift, gruesome mass annihilation. Oh, is that right? Well, here it's just a... a printer. A damn fine printer, mind you. I mean, it'll... It'll burn through some toner cartridges, don't get me wrong, but yeah, no, it's no mass genocide or, or what have you. Pricey though, laser jet printers. I mean they they can be, comparatively, to say, you know, an inkjet or a standard dot matrix or <laughs> well what am I saying? I'm sure your laser jet death contraptions probably run pretty steep in in whatever uh, currency or or credit, you know, you typically procure wares and such forth with. Well, I guess your government might pay for that kind of thing—laser death apparatus, being that it's military and whatnot. But I mean, it's—it's it's still your tax dollars going into that either way, right? So I'm sure not everybody's too happy about it. Definitely not the the folks you're annihilating, obviously. But yeah, different thing. Just a printer. <laughs> So hey, if you enjoyed this week's story, you can communicate that kinetically with subtle posturing via the PayPal credit card donation links off our website, travelcast.org. Make Norm say we. I do literally say we every time someone makes a donation to our show, even if it's just a little bit, because A, paying authors for their work is wonderful, and that's exactly what we do with your donations, and B, it's just a cool concept in general, giving to things you like. There are so many sucky things out there that we have to give our money to. 15% gratuity to crappy restaurant service, those expensive student loans paying off that intro to squirrel feeding class you had as a prereq, child support payments for the Samango monkey you used to nurse before she went bananas, laser printer taxes, giving to something you actually like feels good. And in a perfect world without, you know, economics, that's all there'd ever be. Also, while you're over at Drabblecast.org, shoveling out your life savings, remember, one more week left in the Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. Hit our forums and vote for your favorite story, 100-word Drabble, and episode artwork of 2011. Represent. Okay, so time for our 100-character story winner this week. Each week, of course, we pick a 100-character story from the Twabble section of our discussion forums as winner of our ongoing 100-character story contest. We post it in our Twitter feed, at the Travelcast, and then we run it here on the show. Give it a shot. It's fun. Our winner this week is Zadaisi, with a story called Family Time. Grampy, have you ever heard of the grandfather time travel paradox? She whispers. I can only nod because of the duct tape. Nice one. So I guess you could say that Grandpa was a duct (laughs) taped... What was that? Nurse you, you say? So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives mm-hmm. license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Ready to serve you on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our Kick-Ass episode artist this week, Kelly McAveney. Find a link to her in our show notes. I really like her episode illustration this week. Creepy interpretation of the three-eyed aliens. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Draden, managing editor, our submissions editor, Nathan Lee, editor-at-large, Matthew Bay, our art director, Beau Kire, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you that the goats need milking. piano player picks up his tip jar and drink And the bartender shouts last round <laughs> An hour ago this place was loaded And noise filled the room like the smoke. And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all slurred when slow.